Before the episode, I want to acknowledge three sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Live Oak Bank directly to start a conversation at liveoakbank.com slash contact us. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Barrel. Barrel is a digital marketing agency that helps companies create revenue-generating websites, emails, and marketing campaigns. Clients include L'Oreal, Scott's miracle Grow, Berries, and Smarty Pants Vitamins. Barrel has extensive experience working with venture capital and private equity firms to help audit, optimize, and grow their portfolio brands. To learn more about Barrel, visit barrelny.com slash alex or email newbiz, N-E-W-B-I-Z at barrelny.com and mention Think Like an Owner podcast. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My two guests for this episode are Ryan Lechner and Nico Jimenez, who have raised a traditional search fund together as partners called Bonsai Group and are a few months into their search. I've had searchers with partners on the podcast before, Sam Rosati being a great example, but I haven't had them on the podcast before together. What made this episode particularly fun is Ryan and Nico are lifelong friends and it shows. Finding a partner for a search with aligned values can be very difficult, and luckily for them, they have had a very long due diligence period. In this episode, we talk about why they chose to search as partners, how the role is divided now and might be upon acquisition, how their outreach strategy has evolved, and a company with a very niche monopoly in surfing. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining you guys. I've been excited to have searchers who were partners. I've had some individual searchers, but I'm interested to hear more about the partner dynamic. So to begin, do you guys want to go over your backgrounds? Ryan, perhaps we'll start with you. So it's worth knowing Nico and I grew up together. So we grew up a couple houses down, known each other since we were about five years old. And we both went to university together as well. So not only are we a partnered search, but we kind of have a 25-year brotherhood here that we're building on, which has been pretty awesome. But so my background did finance at UVA, out of school, worked at Bain & Company on the West Coast. So mainly worked in their technology practice, ended up 
joining Netflix and moving down to LA at the time. And this was really at a point where Netflix was moving from like a second run content company to an original run content company and got to help build out our content library and our strategy for originals, which was a lot of fun and a really dynamic time. And then I ended up moving back to the East Coast, working at a growth stage technology company in New York. And at that point, I knew I really wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So after a year of kind of wandering through the desert and figuring out where I was going to plant my feet, I just got increasingly excited about a search fund. And Nico will tell you his story, but he was marching down the same path and decided to go at it together this year. On my end, also went to UVA, as Ryan mentioned. So we were both in kind of their undergraduate business school there. And then from there, I headed up to New York, started kind of in the traditional finance career trajectory where did investment banking at JP Morgan, doing M&A in their healthcare group, then worked at a kind of upper middle market private equity fund. When I joined, it was they just closed their fifth fund. It was a $2 billion fund, mainly investing in kind of industrial manufactured products, some B2B services, but very traditional kind of private equity experience but wanted to really start something from scratch. Just always loved the concept of being an entrepreneur and building something from zero. And so left to start a niche software business, doing a lot of actually analytics and workout management and team management for the endurance fitness space, predominantly swimming, because I was a swimmer, swam in college and had a strong network in swimming. So built that software business with two other friends of mine. And that business is actually still operating today. And it got to a point where it was generating some really nice passive income. It's a very, very sticky, low churn SaaS product, but it also wasn't where our careers were going to end and die. So decided to move on to other experiences. And from there, went back on the investing side this time, rather than doing kind of late stage private equity, doing very early stage tech investing. So joined a venture fund out in L.A., and did kind of series A, series B investing in early stage growth companies. And one of the investments we made is in a company called Bird, which is now a multi-billion dollar micromobility company. If anyone knows about these electric scooters, they kind of kicked off the scooter wars. So we invested in that company and shortly after investing, decided to go back on the operating side and be an operator at Bird. And there kind of helped lead their global expansion strategy in operations. And so I spent most of my time in Mexico, actually building out their operations and team in Mexico. And then during that time, just kind of serendipitously, an opportunity came up to potentially buy out owners of a legacy health benefits business. And this is before I even knew what a search fund was, but it was an opportunity that a friend of mine made me aware of. And I started digging into the business and realizing how much low-hanging fruit there was in this otherwise very, very stable business. And very quickly started dedicating all my time to pursuing that deal and ended up leaving Bird to focus on that full time. And, and that deal ended up falling apart kind of at the 11th hour. But that was through that process, I started learning about this concept of search funds. And that's when Ryan started also learning more about search funds. And we've just been in contact, obviously, over the years around it and decided to ultimately team up and launch an official one together. Yeah. So beyond the lifelong friendship you guys both have, was there something appealing about pairing up together for a search? Definitely. I think there's a lot that's appealing both just from a both a quantitative and qualitative perspective. So I think there are studies, and if you probably go to the Stanford search on Primer, I think there's some data that shows 
that partnered searches tend to have a higher probability of success in finding a business, as well as tend to have higher returns. So I think just from an economics perspective, it makes sense, but that wasn't necessarily the reason I think that we decided to do it. I mean, there's also something incredibly fun about doing it, not only with a friend, but doing it with someone else and kind of not living in your own echo chamber and getting to bounce ideas off each other and going through the ups and downs together and developing a very, very strong relationship. Obviously, Ryan and I already had one, but for any other partnered searches, you just get incredibly close as you go through all the ups and downs. So I just think it's also more fun. And I think we bring a lot of similar characteristics and skill sets. Like we've both had careers in technology, similar education, an undergraduate business school, but we've also had pretty different routes out of school. Nico with a lot of finance skills that I don't really have and myself being able to bring something to the table, right? On tech product, that sort of stuff too. So it really allows us to look at a company with four eyes, but pretty different worldviews. And I think we're going to get to better decisions that way and be able to get a lot more done. So with the tech focus, is that something you're going to focus on in your acquisition? You're going to look for tech companies or is there some other industry you're looking for that you might tangentially apply your tech focus? Yeah, I think for a lot of businesses, specifically businesses that are sort of owner operated for the past 30 or 40 years, there's probably opportunities to use technology. And it could even be, frankly, digital marketing as a new channel that might not be fully realized. So for us to be able to come in there and sort of bring our learnings from the tech sector to just about any company, I think it's going to be a pretty big benefit to us. And I think it just gives you a fresh perspective on sort of systems level thinking and problem solving that complements a lot of our sort of finance and consulting and business, undergraduate business school experience too. So neither of you have an MBA. Did you have any issues with putting a search together with that one? Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> Ryan, you said, oh, I thought you said, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, not really. Yeah, but go for it, Nika. No, I think, well, we did close the fund. I think we closed it in a reasonable amount of time. And so no issues. And it hasn't been something, I mean, it's, it's come up, it came up in a lot of interviews, but it was never, I don't think it was ever a, showstopper, at least as far as we're concerned. And I mean, it's true that most search funds are raised by MBAs, probably for a pretty good reason. I think for Nico and I having undergraduate business school experience, pretty traditional backgrounds of banking, consulting, private equity, and then some real operating experience also helped to be a differentiator or make us a bit unique when we were going out to fundraise. So ended up turning out just fine for us. So in your process of fundraising, how did you evaluate the investors that you chose and if any of them had questions about not having an MBA you obviously have operating experience to like offset that so how did that conversation go or those conversations I think it was really just playing back kind of some of the points we just mentioned I don't think it was a material bottleneck in too many of our conversations but in terms of choosing investors I think the really cool thing about a search fund is getting just a ton of extremely smart accomplished and almost entirely like kind, fun people around the table to help be part of your journey. And really was just trying to build a really diverse portfolio of people with different both experiences and then sort of skills to bring to the table. And yeah, I think getting different sector experience as well was something that was on our mind. But we feel really happy with the group that we got together. Nico, how about you? Did you have any insights from your conversations with investors? 
As it relates specifically to the NBA, I will say that I don't think I've been asked more times about my decision or lack of decision of getting an MBA than I did during those, I guess, two or three months of fundraising. It's funny because if you got asked the question so many times where for the first time where I probably reflected and being like, huh, why didn't I get my MBA? <laughs> it's like not something that I put much weight or thought or energy towards up until really the fundraising period. And I mean, I think this is true for Ryan as well. So I'll maybe I'll speak for both of us here. But I think for us, there was never a point where we just like, quote unquote, decided to pass on getting an MBA. I don't think there was a point where we just really deliberated, like, do we or do we not do we or do we not? I'm sure it's crossed our minds here and there. But at least for me, and I think this is true for Ryan too. kind of each career decision that we took and each opportunity that came up along the way happened so organically. And we were so excited about it that the idea of kind of pausing and not taking that opportunity to then step back and go back to school just didn't seem it wasn't something that came into play. I think MBAs are incredibly valuable and if you need it to get to where you want to go. But if you're kind of heading in the direction you want to go anyways, and you're excited about each new challenge that's being presented, then it's not necessary. And I think all of our investors obviously understood that. They understood why each phase in our career, why each opportunity that we took, why that made sense and how the experiences and skill sets that we accumulated with those opportunities is transferable to what we're going to be doing as operators and managers of a company that we acquire. And so I think they understood that the real life experience that we got is highly relevant and therefore wasn't a ding against us. Maybe there's some investors that did end up passing because we didn't have our MBAs and we were just not aware of it, but everyone seemed to understand that it wasn't a requirement. Gotcha. And then going into your search as partners, how are you dividing up your roles amongst each other? And then what are your plans post-close? Or is that something that's going to be more case by case according to the deal you find? The way that we're sort of running it is that each person essentially is their own sales rep. So you kind of have an industry that you really like and you're focused on. And then we're each building our sort of deal flow in those industries and trying to find the right opportunities. So it's really sort of a divide and conquer approach. Once we find a deal, I think somebody's heads down driving the deal and the other person's more cognizant on keeping the pipeline really going at that point. So that's sort of pre-close. Nika, do you want to talk about post-close? Yeah, although I think it will be somewhat case by case. I think it's a lot going to depend on what the needs of the business are. And a lot of people ask us about, okay, well, who's going to be CEO? And at first, we were like, well, that'll be case by case, depending on, like I said, if the business requires a CEO that has this skill set, this profile, this whatever it is. And if Ryan fits better into that, then it makes more sense for him to be CEO. If I fit better into that, then maybe it makes more sense for me to be CEO. And both of us have the exact same economics. And so I think both of us are very easily able to put ego aside and say, let's just do whatever is going to be best to optimize the equity value that's created, because that's how we end up winning ultimately. So titles don't really matter as long as it's going to maximize how many dollars we end up taking to the bank afterwards. And so that's what's most important. We've heard a lot of search partners taking the co-CEO route, which at first, Ryan and I were like, that's a lazy answer. That's just because you're scared to make a decision. And actually, I shouldn't talk too much trash about that because our biggest backers took a co-CEO role. So if they're listening, 
I don't mean to say that you're lazy and scared of making hard decisions, but we were saying, okay, we don't know if that's necessarily the right path, but we have heard from a few folks that the co-CEO role actually is beneficial and there's actually a lot of merit to it. And so I think we're open to that as well. Yeah, and there it's just you avoid sort of deflecting a lot of responsibility onto one person. If one person CEO and the other person does have the decision-making authority on, let's say, sales or product, there's a risk that people try to politic their way to the CEO, which just creates more of a friction and bottleneck in many ways. So just to sort of have it as dual authority and people kind of view it as such, I think it has worked really well in the past in search deals. We do want to kind of lay out where we're functionally responsible for each part of the business, though. Yeah. So when you've seen other searchers take co-CEO roles in the companies they acquire, how do they usually distribute those roles in the company? I can't help but think of that office episode with Jim and Michael, where they're both co-managers of the office. (laughs) Curious how you guys have seen that role distributed. I think one way is sort of inside and outside. So someone's focused on sort of core operations, finance, that sort of stuff. Outside being more like sales and marketing. I think that's a pretty clean divide. There's other ways to do it as well. And you can cherry pick who has the relevant skill sets in the organization. But I think it ends up being pretty case by case. And each business is some sort of unique construct that needs to be handled just the right way. And then also, who else do we have in the organization around the table to help us run the business? It certainly won't be the two of us. So we'll also want to design around that too. If you had a situation where only one of you became CEO, would the other person then look for another deal and to add another company to Bonsai? I don't think we do sort of a second search. I think there could be a case where Nico has a lot of M&A experience, for example. So a lot of his time might be like corp dev focused, whether or not we are sort of co-CEOs. We'd both plan to be all in on a company for sure. So there might just be two different titles. And again, I don't think the titles are really the most important thing. It's really... How do we end up getting this business where we want to go with it? How has your experience been so far reaching out to owners? It's very emotionally taxing because you need to approach every single day with this positive mentality of today's the day and stay optimistic. But the reality is chances are today's not the day. We send out hundreds, if not sometimes over a thousand emails a week and You really do get a mixed bag of responses, but I will say 90 plus percent of the responses are no. And then the responses that are yes, hey, I'm open to discussing and maybe you do a little bit of pre-qualification. Okay, well, are you at least this size? And yep, we are. You get on the phone with them and most of those calls end up not leading to something that's relevant to spend time on. And then when you do end up finally feeling like you have a fish on the hook that's this is worth fighting for and worth spending time on. The probability is that it actually ends up progressing far into the funnel, let alone closing a deal is even is still very small. And so you have to approach every day with a bright eyed, bushy tailed mentality as if it's your first day, because if you start getting a little lazy or jaded, then you may miss the one. You may miss that needle in the haystack and diamond in the rough. So it's just that battle. And I love speaking to people who have built really cool businesses in a niche that you never even heard of. And to think, too, that you can help solve a real problem for this person, which is like, my net worth is in this business. How do I get some liquidity without having to sell to someone that I might not want to sell to and really put sort of the successor plan in place? That's pretty awesome. And when you come across those people, it's a really joyous experience to chat to someone who's 
ready to make this big plunge and you can be the right person for them to take that next step. But yeah, the funnel is so steep. And a lot of people just have other goals. They want to keep growing their business and really raise some capital to put it into the company, but stay sort of full-time in the CEO role. And there's other people out there who will do that. So finding the two-way fit, it makes sense why the search can take some time. It is a really steep funnel. How much learning have you had from like your first 10 phone calls or so to where you're now at your 50th or 100th phone call? How much smoother and more comfortable do you feel with answering a lot of like those frequent questions that an owner has for you? You just have to be ready to have the hard conversations up front without it being a complete deterrent and showstopper. You don't want to close the door too early, but just to let someone know sort of how you think about valuation, sort of that you and your partner who are new to their industry are coming in to be CEO or CEOs. Those are conversations that maybe to a fault sometimes, but you want to put out there and let people know at the very least what your guardrails are. And you definitely get more confident and polished in having those talking points in the first conversation. But I also think you're doing both sides. Just These people are incredibly busy running pretty good businesses. So you're doing, I think that it tends to be appreciated, I find, when you're just very upfront on what it would take for this to make sense and seeing if it's a fit or not. I felt that, I mean, I think I've gotten a lot better since we first started. Also, you start to identify these different seller or business owner profiles, and you start getting more sophisticated in terms of how you tailor your messaging based on what you're picking up on the other side of the line. And so it's just, I feel like I can navigate my way through a conversation and say the right things, or at least I think they're the right things on kind of an owner by owner, case by case basis. And so it's like anything, you get better at it over time. And I'm sure there's still so much room to continue improving. But I feel like now I get on a call with someone and I feel very comfortable. I, I'm no longer getting on the calls and being like, oh man, I, I hope this, this is a lot less, I guess, nerve wracking. Advice I got really early on that just, I think, saved me a lot of heart pain was just like be humble and let people know just how little you actually know about their business or their industry. Because that ends up defusing the conversation a bit and makes someone willing to show up and open up and tell you about their company. I've heard of other searchers who come in wanting to prove that they're an expert, and maybe at some point you are. But I mean, people will sniff it out of you if they've spent 30 years in the industry and you've spent three months even, or even three years. They'll just say, nah, you're faking it. And just being humble, willing to listen. I mean, it's great characteristics of a leader of just about any organization. So starting with that, at least I find it works much better when you can kind of put your humility on the table. It's a trust building exercise. You have some random name coming through your inbox. You don't know who they are. There's very little that they know about you. Luckily, we're not the first ones to do this. And so there's precedent of people successfully having a succession plan through a search fund. And so we're not fighting that battle. I think if we were the pioneers here, then it would be very hard to get a deal done. But at least there's understanding that this model exists. And so that helps establish credibility and trust with the model. And then it's just a matter of establishing credibility and trust with you as an individual. And so, yeah, to Ryan's point, if you try to fake it a little too much and they sniff that, then all of a sudden any tint of distrust is going to completely sour their perception of you and make it very unlikely that you're going to be their successor. There's also, I find just in search, like you kind of need to like 
throttle your energy levels, not to sound too West Coast on the East Coast half of our search, but you need to just kind of make sure that you have enough energy to have kind of the same call eight, 10 times a day sometimes. And it's way, way easier to do that if you're not trying to posture or I think the sell by not selling, I think is advice that I very much believe. And I think it so far, it's getting me through the day and just getting me to better conversations. Yeah. And Nico, you mentioned a few different owner profiles. Have you kind of figured out the different buckets of personalities that you tend to run into and how you converse with those folks? To a certain extent, there's so many different types. But I mean, ultimately, you have folks that it's very clear that they just care about highest price. And that starts to become evident when they start getting most of their conversation is directed on, well, what multiple would you apply to my business? And well, I think my business is worth this much. And if that's where they're heading, you can navigate around that conversation. But usually that's one profile of seller where typically that's, at least for us, a little bit of a turnoff. There's the other profile of center will never mention price. And all they talk about is their employees and how their employees are like family to them and how they really care about making sure that everyone is still going to have a job in a year or in two years. And so that's a totally different profile. And those obviously tend to work better with the search fund model. You have business owners who they'll, talking about trust, I mean, trust goes both ways. There's times where I get off the phone where everything sounds good, but you just get this vibe that they're being dishonest in some way, shape or form. For us as buyers, that's scary because we don't want to be in a situation where we're buying a business and then six months into it, we're like, oh, wow, there's this, this and this that we weren't told about or whatever it might be. And so it's always comforting to talk to a business owner where when they send you the numbers, it's exactly what they said over the phone. When they communicate this or send you this data poll, it's very much aligned with what they communicate. And so just having things check out and match up is there's some business owners that are very much in that camp and others that don't have that profile. So then you have folks that will, you have your talkers. I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I think Ryan and I are both sometimes guilty of this, but you have your business owners where they'll keep you on the phone for 90 minutes if they could. And it's really tough to have the heart to just shut them up, but you have those. And then you have those that like to get right to the point and they just go, these are my numbers. This is the thing. This is the situation. If you're willing to pay this price, then like we can continue the conversation. If not, like have a nice day. So it's a mixed bag and all is fair. The heartbreaking one for me is when you have an owner who's, they got a great company. They're certainly thinking about succession, but you just know it's like a decade out still, or even like five years out still. And I love to nurture those relationships. I'd love to connect them with the right searcher when we're operating a company, but sometimes if the timing's just not right, you can't twist someone's arm into selling you your business. You certainly shouldn't try. I want someone who's ready to do it and is on board. Now, if they need a little bit of time to like get comfortable and get over the finish line, I totally get it. And we're early enough that we have the ability to be pretty patient and still get a deal done. But man, when you know you want the business and somebody's still got a few years of building the thing before they're really going to start a conversation. That's a heartbreaker. Intent to sell is one of the first things we try to suss out. So how do you suss that out? I find it the toughest part of the process. No doubt. But I mean, if someone has a real life event, like retirement, they're ready to retire, their spouse is asking them to retire. That tends to be a really good signal. Not always so, but it could be a good one. Also, just to understand sort of what someone's doing after they sell their business their hopes and dreams. And if there's a clear plan, 
like a use of time and money, that's great. Even with some younger business owners, if they just love getting from zero to one and they can't wait to get back to the drawing board and the idea of growing a company from 20 to $100 million is just not interesting. The numbers are interesting, but like the getting up every day to run sort of a adult style company is just not what they want to do. If they have that plan and that passion and you can really hear that they want to get back to the drawing board with some cash in the bank and go from zero to one again on a new idea, that's totally fine as well. But it's clarity. They need some sort of clarity of what comes next or else they risk just kind of shopping for valuations or whatever. Do you have a few stories and examples of calls where you felt like you learned the most about talking with owners? If there's an industry that we're excited to learn more about, like I'm even just thinking in one case, I was starting to dig pretty deep into kind of fire protection and safety services. And there was a business owner that I got on the phone with where very quickly just realized that the company was far too small and it wasn't going to be something that we would pursue seriously. But he was willing to talk and we developed some good rapport early on in the call. And so I just used that call to just soak in as much industry knowledge and expertise as I could about fire protection and safety services, everything from the different types of certifications these service providers may or may not need and why and who the different players are and kind of the different parts of the value chain, everything from the manufacturing of the safety products to the distribution to the servicing to the installation, to the servicing and replacing, and just where there were opportunities in those categories. So that might not be a conversation you'll want to have with a business owner where you're really trying to court them to try to buy their business because they very quickly may realize that there's some shortcomings in your knowledge about their industry and therefore maybe you won't be the right buyer for them. But whenever there's you know on the phone with someone that know that they're not a potential target, just try to squeeze as much knowledge while also though this is always the part that try to return the favor as well so getting off the call if it was just the person giving you a ton of value and they didn't feel like they got any value out of that call then they might be like okay well that was a waste of 30 minutes or 45 minutes but if you try to offer up what you're seeing in market regardless of whether it's specific to their industry just oh this is kind of what i'm seeing with business owners this is what they're thinking about they have taxes on their mind this is whatever it might be or even if it's just some charm and good humor and you make them laugh even something simple like that where they just feel like they left the call being like okay that was a fun call so that's usually how i try to approach it and i think sometimes you speak to an owner too who just like some people just have a better strategy or better focus And when you kind of come across that, it's really cool. And speaking to an owner and letting them brag about it, of course, is many people would want to. But we've spoken to owners who just sort of said, hey, listen, like if I just focus on this one customer segment, yeah, it's a much smaller portion of the market, 10% of the market, but way more profitable. And I'm just going to try to get as much market share in that one segment as possible those businesses can do great. You find people who choose a bit of a different business model. So in a lot of more like boots on the ground, sort of facility services businesses, a lot of people do sort of big projects that have high dollar value below margin. And coming across an owner who does a lot of very small projects and can scale that a lot better once they hit a certain volume, just those little insights that people have where you kind of are leaning forward by the end of the call being like, man, this is a really good strategy. And it's not often the case that they're the only person in the market who has figured it out. But when you're looking at a thousand businesses, there might be 10 who are doing the thing that 
can really lead to a much better business. And that's when you really want to lean in and say, huh, okay, like, let's chase this one. Certainly. Is there a few calls where it didn't go well? And you also had some lessons there too? This kind of comes back to sort of energy levels. But if you just stack up too many calls, you can end up to do this well, you need to like, have very good deep listening skills and like a high, strong attention span. Like I want to really understand what this business does, how they make money, why they're different than their competitors, what makes this business owner tick, why they build it, what they're planning on doing next. Do they have a reasonable price expectation? And that's a lot of questions, but like a lot of the call should be deep listening and picking up on the little nuances on their answers that can give us some indication on whether or not it's a good fit. And I think if you're catching up on 50 emails in the inbox and half listening, or you just don't have an appropriate understanding of what their company does, you can get into a pretty bad conversation very quickly. I unfortunately don't have any horror stories or bad call story. Like I wish I had more. I wish I had something where I was like, well, there's this one time I was on the call with the business owner and they were just like, fuck you. Like you suck. I'm never talking to you again or whatever it might be. Like we've gotten some of that language in email responses, but generally when you you get on the phone with someone, not to say it's boring, we geek out on this stuff all day. We love like picking these people's brains, but man, if you were like a third party, just listener, you'd be like, this is the most boring thing ever. Like no cool stories, at least so far. I hope some come up. So I have a folder in my Gmail called rejects. It's about 30 different, just very mean emails that people sent me in response. And I'm looking forward to like, maybe on Nico and Mai's like 10th anniversary as business partners, printing out a binder of that because it's really humorous and you just have to take it in good stride. But I think the one place, Nico, where I'd say it certainly is, is a good laugh is like when you get on the phone with a business owner and they're just categorically way too big for you to buy. And you're like, yeah, I don't think I could really buy a $500 million business. But what's funny, I don't know why this is the case. It might be a bit of like self-selection, but like they tend to be like the nicest people when we've had those scenarios. They're like, well, tell me more about what you're doing. It's really cool. I wish I did that when I was your age and not afraid to impart advice. So I think for the most part, and again, they're choosing to get on the phone, probably knowing that you're a bit of a time waster. But I have found that while you're a little bit embarrassed when you get off the call, it ends up being probably a pretty good conversation still. So in that sense, when you have a bad phone call that doesn't go well or you get a bad email, how do you like make sure that you get your mind right for the next call or the next interaction and you don't dwell on it for too long? Yeah, I just tend to call Nico and like laugh it off a little bit. I think that's the best strategy. This is, I think, a benefit of just having been operators in the past. As an operator and manager, you develop a pretty thick skin to things. Things always go wrong or people are always complaining or you just develop a thick skin to it. You never take anything too seriously or too personally. If you did, oh man, that would be in a dark place. I'd rather just like have someone punch me in the face really hard like three times a day than just someone like flicking me in the back of the head all the time. So just... Let it out. Tell me why I'm wasting your time. And if I'm not, like, great, you can get to work here. Yeah, there's something about being able to separate yourself personally from these situations that even though it's like if you get an owner on the phone and it the deal works, like it's a hugely life-changing relationship, but also knowing that it's also probably not going to work out. So having some separation between your personal like emotions and excitement 
in this what is a pretty major decision from the outside looking in it seems like it's something that'd be really difficult and i think along those lines like i think nico and i believe that we can give someone a pretty life-changing outcome a retirement plus a great succession plan for their business plus a number of other benefits a legacy and just when you have kind of conviction in that mission and that value proposition again you're not really selling at that point we just, hey, if it's not the right thing for you, we're certainly going to find someone for whom that is the right thing. So without being arrogant, I think just knowing that the model is going to work for someone and we're going to find the right two-way fit, I think we've already found a number of people where that would be the case. You can stay motivated on that because I think the reward is really good for us and it's really good for the business owner as well. What's one thing you're trying to learn more about today that you've devoted a lot of focus and energy to? Well, I don't know if it answers your question directly, but I think the thing I wish I knew when we were starting a search fund is just the game changes each step of the process completely. It's like almost like a Rubik's cube where you take one step forward and everything kind of switches. Going from fundraising to launching a search fund, sort of kind of revving up the engine to full blast. And then once you're actually pursuing a deal, it just feels almost like a completely different use of time. And then you end up taking a step backwards if a deal falls apart. So agility is something that I don't hear people talk enough about in the search community. I mean, certainly it's a topic, but um, it really is important to stay agile, being ready to like, just change what you do every day, 20 times over in a single day. I don't know. Does that touch on your question at all? Yeah, that's a great one. Absolutely. To that point, there's just so much that's outside of our control. Even the fact that we launched this search fund in the heat of the pandemic. We closed in April, launched in May, and that was very much in the thick of things as it relates to the current climate that we're all living through. And so those are things where, again, like like I was mentioning earlier, in terms of just having a thick skin, these constant changes and the need to be agile and to adapt to things that are completely outside of your control is things that you do learn as an operator and just things that you get comfortable with. And so we're dealing with issues now during our search, whether it's we get flagged for spam and our emails are ending up in the spam box, or we have a global pandemic going on and everyone's numbers are out of whack or whatever it might be. There's constantly things that are getting thrown our way. And it's just important to stay cool, calmed and composed and not be reactionary. So that's the biggest thing. And I think we're fortunate that we both have had that mentality kind of coming into this, but it's one of those things where if you don't have it, you need to learn to get that type of mentality quickly. Otherwise you'll drive yourself insane. So the day that we finished our fundraising road trip, it's the day that I drove back from Boston and Nico was on a flight back to LA. That night I'm like sitting on my couch with my wife, like just watching TV and we look at her phone and the NBA is canceled. And then like Tom Hanks gets coronavirus, which pretty much is when coronavirus became like really scary to a lot of people, though it should have been well before that in the U.S. So it's just kind of luck of the draw. We were like, wow, okay, we're starting at a really interesting time for this. And we kind of were a little bit patient in officially launching our fund. But I think we were almost a bit lucky because we just simply didn't know any better on what a search should or could be like. And we were so excited to get going that there was no determent at all. I think we were running full blast from day one. So can't control the timing. But I think as Nico was saying, just to 
make sure that every day you're just, you know, what obstacles will be thrown your way, you'll get past them, even if it is a global pandemic, economic collapse, a really daunting, formidable time to start a search. But just got to keep on keeping on, I guess, and take it one day at a time. At first, we were scared that we were going to be able to have any in-person meetings. And obviously, it's hard to build that trust that we were talking about earlier and rapport without meeting someone face to face. But over the last month, Ryan and I have had a fair share of in-person meetings, and they vary in levels of strangeness in terms of I had one meeting where it was like a what felt like a 20 or 30 foot long conference table and the owner was on one end and I was all the way on the other end and we were wearing masks. Now, completely understanding that the owner was 74 years old and wanted to be extra cautious. I was actually surprised he was even open to meeting in person in the first place. But it was one of those things where, I mean, normally the meeting is focused around building rapport and there it was focused around understanding what they were saying because it was so muffled and so far. So it was just, you have things like that that are a little unique. But recently we've gotten better about how to do these in-person meetings in a very kind of non-threatening way to some of these older business owners. And people have been open to meeting in person, but none of these problems that we're dealing with are going to, they all pale in comparison to the problems that we'll be facing as operators. I'm just convinced of that. We've felt that firsthand. These are small issues. So nothing that's a showstopper. My first closing question is what class would you teach in college if it could be about anything you wanted? Do you want to start, Ryan? It's maybe a bit of a nerdy answer, and I'm not sure I'm the best person to do it, but I feel like data analysis for business school students, like data analytics, and then just statistical thinking, you can do so much more using advanced analytics than you could just using a spreadsheet and get better answers faster. So I think it's a great skill set. And then just kind of having a statistical framework to approach the world, thinking about things like sample size. Do you actually have enough evidence to make a decision at this point? There's just a lot of, I think, learnings that you could apply to every single business problem that you're going to face. That's a class I probably should take and wouldn't take. So you've got me. (laughs) Just because Ryan's teaching it, actually. No, just kidding. I'm actually very glad that Ryan is as analytically minded and data driven as he is. I consider myself a analytically minded person, but I definitely don't have the innate capacity that Ryan does to think through these scenarios and through a mathematical and statistical lens. So if you do a partner search, find a partner that has that mind without a doubt. I think for me, the class that I would love to teach is I would love to take this class or teach a class all around different cognitive biases and mapping out every cognitive bias out there, everything from confirmation bias to loss aversion to the IKEA effect to there's different social biases. I think it's really important to be mindful of some of the shortcomings of our mental models and heuristics that we view the world and make decisions on. And to the extent that we can be aware of those, not only makes us more empathetic individuals, but also makes us better decision makers. So I think it's really important to understand those mental biases and limitations. What's the IKEA effect that you mentioned? That is where you assign kind of a disproportionate amount of value to something that you helped build, regardless of its true worth. And that's actually really relevant for understanding that biases to a certain extent is 
It's obvious when you think about it, but it's also relevant to what we do because these business owners oftentimes have built this from the ground up without taking any capital funding and really building it organically. And so it's only natural for them to assign a value to it that may be disproportional to what it's actually worth. And that's something that from a valuation perspective, we battle with. But again, that's a bias that isn't just true in whether you're building Ikea furniture or a multi-million dollar business, but it's just these biases are prevalent in so many different forms. And I think it's important to be mindful of them. What's a belief you used to hold strongly that you've changed your mind on? It's funny. So I think kind of coming out of school and out of management consulting, I felt like to really kind of have a positive social impact, would want to plant myself at a pretty socially minded organization. And I think what I kind of have grown to appreciate is that you can have a really big impact running a local business of any sort of flavor, creating jobs, helping your community develop in advance, having a much smaller but much more direct impact on the world around you. If we lived in a world full of people doing that, and I think in many ways we do, we'll be in great shape. Kind of going local is something that I just don't think I appreciated enough in the past. So something I used to believe that I changed my mind on by the existence of Santa Claus. It is the first thing that came to mind when you asked the question, and it's part a half-joking response, but I think there is a lot to... I very much remember the moment when I found out and realized that Santa Claus wasn't true, and that was one of those moments where it turned me into a lifelong skeptic. Not necessarily in like a negative way, but by all means, I very much question many things. It also made me realize that, wow, something that you can believe so deeply, it can just not be true. And that is something that now Ryan and I always talk about how we have very strong opinions, but they're loosely held. And that's something that I just feel like I've carried on with me since that very earth shattering moment. It's funny, actually, that you mentioned that. Because so at Netflix, we had this concept called idol smashing, which is take the most like sacred belief that everyone just assumes to be like how we do things at Netflix. And if you could just prove that it's not a good decision, you'll get promoted like two levels. And it very much ties to that. We all fail to do that in a business context frequently. Oh, well, this is just how it's done. So I think that's a great example. 20 years from now, what do you think you'll look back on and see as your Santa Claus of today? It's a scary thought because I'm making real life decisions based on what I know to be true. And if 20 years from now, I look back and realize that one of those things wasn't true, then I made a ton of decisions predicated on this completely false assumption. And that's a scary thought. So I hope the answer is nothing. There's no doubt that all the beliefs I hold today are unequivocally true. So I'm sure there's something. Let's see. And this will be a lot easier said than done when I have all the money in the world. But like, it's not all about the money. I know that's like, there's studies that show that's true. But the reality is like my driving force is money and accruing wealth. And I put a lot of weight and time into that. And maybe 20 years from now, I'll be like, I shouldn't have sacrificed so much time with friends and family and instead have put more time into those things. I almost know that's true today, but I also know that in 20 years from now, I'm going to be in a position where it's like, yeah, easier said than done because now I have all the money in the world and I get to spend all the time that I want with friends and family because I get to fly them out to whatever island I'm hanging out on. So hopefully that's my Santa Claus of 20 years from now. There was a friend of mine who was talking to somebody who was saying, I want to have $30 million. And like by the time I'm 40 and he's like, I don't care what it's going to take, like relationships, family friends, like work hours, life balance. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get there. 
and just seemed kind of hollow. There's no inherent goal there. Like your life won't be, I mean, you could buy more stuff, sure, but your life won't be that much different, I would think. I think a mistake that a lot of people in our generation make, and myself very much included, is just that like your work defines your importance. I would elect that as a Santa Claus. Ultimately, what you accomplish is not at all reflective of how other people that care about you are going to think about you. It's the way you treat people, all the stuff that Nico alluded to. So that would be my Santa Claus. I like it. What's the best business you've ever seen? This might be cheating on my behalf since I worked there, but I mean, Netflix never ceases to amaze me just in terms of being able to reinvent itself from a DVD company to a streaming company, a streaming company to an original content house, and then really a U.S. Hollywood dominant service to a sort of multinational best content around the world. It's so impressive and it speaks to culture, willingness to listen to the data and just like relentless focus. And if you can do all those things right, you're just pulling ahead from the pack. And I'm so long on the company compared to competitors. I think that's a big part of it. And the other thing is just actually, and kind of on the first last question you asked me around data analytics, like being able to understand what people want by really studying it with teams of data scientists and analysts is such a differentiator. Like most of Hollywood is like, four to six genres that they program against. Netflix has hundreds and they're able to just look so deeply into what are the different trends and content patterns that people want and make really smart decisions around how to create as much joy as possible with their subscriber base. So I think there's not a lot of other companies doing that and it shows in just everything in their financial performance. I think for me, and I don't know too much about the inner workings of this company, but Surfline, they do surf cams and kind of daily surf reports for surfers. Their tagline is no before you go. So, you know, all about just the conditions before you actually get on that wetsuit and run out or drive out, whatever it might be to go surf. And the reason I think that business is interesting is because they do have a subscription model and it's like, what are a hundred bucks a year? And I don't know a single surfer that isn't subscribed to Surfline. And as far as I can tell, their costs aren't too crazy. And they just have, from what I can tell, a complete monopoly on this niche that is big enough to just be one of the most interesting businesses I've seen. It's still a very, very big market, but it's small enough and also non-consequential enough where no one cares to cry monopoly and cry foul on their monopoly in in this market. There's no trust busters coming in and being like, the surfing market needs more competition. And not that they're completely ripping people off by any means. I think they operate in a very ethical way, but they do have a complete monopoly on a, I would imagine, a multi-hundred million dollar niche. So I think that's a great business. It was founded in the 80s and it's been very, very tightly held as far as I know, never raised outside capital and just prints money. Nice. So what do you get with $100 a year? Is there a free version as well? So the free version, you get like one or two days in advance of forecasts, whereas the premium version, you get like two weeks in advance. So you can see swells that are building up and coming through well in advance. You also get ad-free surf cam vid. So you can 
rather than needing to wait 15, 20 seconds to see another 10 second clip of the waves in whatever local surf spot you're going to, you just get uninterrupted surf video. And then there's like a couple of little things here and there, but those are the big ones. And if you surf more than a couple of times a month, it's worth the subscription. And like I said, I don't know a single person who doesn't have it. So do they own the cameras that are on the beach? I think so. So it used to be, this is another cool thing about the company is that they've totally tech enabled their services over the years. And so it used to be a scenario where it was 50 cents a call. So you would call in and they would give you the surf report. That was like back in like the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s. So they charge 50 cents a call. Now they've installed these HD cameras at famous surf breaks And I don't know how much those cameras cost. I can't imagine they cost too, too much. And then once they're installed, it's kind of infinitely scalable from there. And so I'd imagine the payback's great on them. And yeah, it's like I said, it's not like the more people they have, the more cameras they're necessarily installing. So are you going to reach out to them to try to buy them? I would love. Yeah, there's no chance. They are a massive business. And they're in Huntington Beach, though. And like I said, I think they're low key, like, The original founder, unfortunately, passed away like six or seven years ago. But whoever owns that business, I think they're like low-key richest people in Huntington Beach, if not all of SoCal. And I don't see them selling. They'd be too expensive for us anyways. We'll have to get them on the podcast. That'd be pretty sweet. Well, thanks for joining me, you guys. This was awesome. I'd love to get and talk to you guys about being partners in search and your experience getting on the phone with people and hearing about interesting businesses. So thank you very much for your time. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. 